First of all, I would start by apologizing to the anti-woke movement because they started raising concerns about 10 years ago. And for quite a few years, I was saying, look, it's bad in universities. Otherwise, you're just looking around a huge world for a few scandals to get mad about. And this isn't going to affect normal people very much. But then the problems seemed to start growing at about 50% per year. And after 10 years of growing at 50%, what was a statistically small, unemotionally aggravating problem became an actual problem, and I just did not see that coming. Freedom sounds good, but a lot of the things that people do with their freedom sound bad. Therefore, mm -hmm. if you want to promote freedom of choice, it is just rhetorically much more effective to keep beating the drum of freedom and just try to distract people from the ugly truths about what people will do with their freedom. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today I'm speaking with Brian Kaplan. Brian is an economist and professor at George Mason University, the writer of the Bet on It Substack, and the author of many books Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, The Case Against Education, Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration, and the newly released Don't Be a Feminist Essays on Genuine Justice. He's a libertarian, as you can probably tell by some of his book titles. After recording this podcast, I put out a tweet saying that every interview with a libertarian feels like a psychodrama. I think going from a description of some kind of theoretical optimum to a more applied and politically constrained one is an important task for the present day, and an extraordinarily undervalued one. This is something I've done in my own life, and we definitely talk about that task today. Without further ado, here's Brian Kaplan. So the question I want to ask you is, you, you wrote a book called How Evil Are Politicians, and you wrote another uh, blog post about the uh, principal agent problem where you say, uh, blame the principals, right? Uh, so are voters more or less evil than politicians? Less. Less. All right. So uh, the occasion for having you on the podcast is you published a new book, uh, not the book that I just mentioned, but another book called Don't Be a Feminist. And I think that'll resonate with at least, I don't know, 60, 70% of my audience. And so... Hi, so, <laughs> yeah. 60, 70%. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm interested, what are the kind of, uh, what are the kind of axioms in, in your main critique for the audience? I wouldn't think of it as being about axioms at all, honestly. That's not the way that I really think about the world. I do start with trying to get a handle on the definition of feminism, which again, I don't just stipulate a definition. I try to look at actual language so that I'm using words in a normal way. Often I'll start with a dictionary. So in the case of feminism, you go to dictionaries, usually they'll say it's just the belief that women should have economic, social, political equality with men. However, this is a case where I just think the dictionary is wrong. In fact, I think <laughs> it is a politically motivated definition. Thing. And again, like, why is that? Well, we actually have public opinion data asking people, first of all, are you a feminist or not? And second of all, do you believe in the equality of the genders, economic, political, social? And guess what? Almost all people who say they're not feminists still believe in the equal treatment of women in all, of the, in all of those margins, which means this does not make sense as a definition. It would be like saying feminism is the theory that the sky is blue. All right, well, yeah, I believe feminists think the sky is blue. Guess what? The non-feminists think the sky is blue too. So that is not a definition that distinguishes the position from other positions. I then say, if that's not it, what would be a good definition? 
And the candidate one that I put forward is feminism is the view that our society treats men more fairly than women. If you look at musician definitions, often in the next sentence, they'll go and add on something like that. So I would say I'm not even that far from more expansive definitions. But anyway, once I got that on the table, then I say, all right, now we have something interesting to talk about because we can then say, well, let's make a list of all the main ways that you might think that our society does in fact treat men more fairly than women, but then to avoid confirmation bias. Uh, do your readers know about confirmation bias, Cactus? Yes, for, for sure, for sure. Good. All right, to avoid confirmation bias, after we've listed all the ways that it seems like our society might treat men more fairly than women, we need to also go and make another list of all the ways that one might think that our society treats women more fairly than men. I come with those two lists. Then I say, all right, that's a good starting place, but that's not anywhere close to the end because it's always possible that what people think of as unfairness is actually not unfair at all. It could be that we have a mere case of inequality despite having a fair system. Now, by analogy, I have won no Olympic medals. It's not because the system is stacked against me that the Olympic rules say I'm not allowed to compete. Rather, the harsh reality is I'm just not good. All right, so the reason I don't have any Olympic medals is probably entirely explained by the fact that I'm not that good at athletics. I would be no more near world-class in anything, and that's the story. Or maybe I have the talent, but I didn't try. That's another possibility. And again, that would seem a very strange kind of unfairness to say, well, I'm the best boxer in the world. I've never actually done it, but trust me, I'm great. I just didn't feel like it. It's like, well, even if that was true, still, you don't deserve the medal. The medal is there for people who, in fact, win. All right. So, and again, this is where my training economics is relevant because economists have a long history of looking at observed inequality and then seeing if it can be consistently explained by reference to something other than just discrimination. So I go over that for all of the bodies of research that we actually have, uh, one by one, going over all of the complaints that women might have, all the complaints that men might have. And really what I walk away with is all the complaints are overstated. Women's complaints are overstated. Men's complaints are overstated. In the end, you're probably pretty close to parity. We, there is, it is not true that our society in any way clearly treats men more fairly than women. There's a few areas where it seems like it goes one way in the end, a few ways where it seems like it goes the other way. Uh, I then do add on I think the, what I call my, the universe, the, the tiebreaker. There is one big disparity that isn't really explained otherwise. And this is men do have to put up with a lot more false accusations of unfairness than women precisely because there is a loud and vocal feminist movement saying how badly women are treated. There is a men's movement, but it's very small by comparison. So I say, look, if treatment of two groups is roughly similar, but one endures really almost constant accusations that are false, I think that's enough to tip the scales. Uh, but in the big picture is just that it's not really true that there is in our society a notable gender imbalance in terms of the fairness of treatment, although, of course, everyone is treated unfairly some of the time. That's life. I actually want to. I, I want to like uh, Starman the uh, the uh, feminist case. A star and, Starman. Uh, that's yeah, different. Than so, Man? Wait, yeah. Is that do you know? Do you know uh, Angel Eduardo? No. Okay, so he he came up with this term. He's a contributor to all sorts of magazines uh -huh. uh, and publications, and he came up with this term, Starman, which is like not only do you want to present the case as 
the advocates of the case would uh-huh. honestly present them, but you kind of want to like reach deep into their soul and give okay. like actual right. reasons. Well, new, new, to, new to me, I like it. All right, let's star man feminism. Do it, Tech. Yeah. Do it, Cactus. <laughs> and so I think that Do it. it's not just <laughs> the kind of uh, systematic or or like procedural discrimination that they're going after, right? I, I think that if you take the the feminist aesthetic case seriously, you basically have uh, all of these biological constraints, basically. And, and I would say that most people who call themselves feminists would be less than forthright with some of these biological concerns. But the fact mm-hmm. is that if you're someone who has to, uh, if you want to have children, right, it's going to be easier, it's going to be less both physically burdensome and burdensome on your career, right, if you're a man versus you, if you're a woman, mm-hmm. uh, if you're a woman. There are all sorts of other biological constraints that you have. There are population differences in, for example, uh, neuroticism and agreeableness mm-hmm. that I think mm-hmm. lead to a kind of population uh, disparity. And there are also changes in sexual norms, changes in, of course, technology that we can't overlook that create different incentives that do alter right these uh, biological preferences uh, that are derived from basically right evolution. Right? So you have all of these ways in which men and women are fundamentally different. And even if you can say, like, all right, it, given that a man or a woman has exactly the same traits, if a man or a woman is equally, mm-hmm. um, equally neurotic and equally uh, agreeable or disagreeable, mm-hmm. equally um, ambitious, right, that those people are going to be treated the same, right? The fact that you have biological differences means that even if that procedural, um, even if that procedure is the same, there are still kind of grievances to be had, there are still concerns to be had and things that, uh, at least in the from the feminist perspective, would be would be better if we changed, right? Yeah. Don't, don't you think that's true? I mean, I re- no. I mean, well, I mean, so there's two, there's two levels of the no. The first level of the no <laughs> is does it make to does it make sense to go and have a grievance against a biological fact that was not up to any human being? And I just say, like, if that is your standard, you are an impossible to please person, and there's really barely any point in even trying to address your concerns. So if you say, look, like we're born with different genetic genetically influenced personalities, and our personalities are bad, and now I have a grievance. It's like that's your grievance. Like, how can that be your grievance? Like, it's not, no one is responsible for it. The right term for that is not unfair, but unfortunate at most. Uh, But even if we were to accept this way of looking at it, I would just step back and say, well, why don't we go and try to avoid some confirmation bias here and just step back? I mean, here is one big thing we can say. Uh, While it is true that possibly for biological reasons, men are overrepresented at the top, it is also true that for equally plausible biological reasons, men are overrepresented at the bottom. So that's you know, that is a very important thing to keep in mind. So yeah, like in terms of things like you know severe, <laughs> what's the right way of saying like severe conscientiousness disorder? Men seem to be a lot higher on that, and that's probably why they're so over- overrepresented among the homeless. Right, that would be just one example. So well, oh, so the disorder is that they're not conscientious enough. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So it's one you know you may say that you know, men have the most true workaholics, and that's why they're at the top. Men also probably are overrepresented at the bottom because also men who just have a pathological version of work. So that's something where you can step back and say, all right, well, you know, these things are, we can see them on both sides. 
uh, namely, you know, the, you know, like it's not the case that women are uniquely burdened. You can rather say that w- women seem to have something closer to the average. Men have more variance. And just by standard risk aversion, you would say that it's worse to be a man because to have a you know couple percent chance of being super successful and a couple percent chance of being super miserable. A risk aversion would normally say, depending upon how you interpret it, that actually the one where you just can re- reduce those two tail risks, if you can reduce the downside tail risk at the same time that you re- diminish the upside tail risk, that's a good deal. I would also point out things like it's a lot easier for women to, to reproduce if they want to. There are a lot of guys considered so unattractive that it's just hard for them to have kids at all, right? Whereas it has to be a very unattractive woman to be a woman to be unable to have kids at all. In fact, in our society, probably that doesn't even matter in the end. You could use a sperm bank or something like that, regardless of how reluctant anyone is to actually want to have kids with you. In terms of the extent to which uh, the, uh, these differences are even biological, yeah, you immediately made me think about my wife. So we've got four kids. She had three pregnancies. We had a twin pregnancy. All three times she worked up until the very last day before she had the kids. The reason why wow. having the kids was a bigger burden on her, including the twin pregnancy. Yeah, so she's a trooper. Uh, also got video of her like two hours after giving birth to twins and saying like, how are you doing? And I'm doing fine. I'm like, holy, like, my God. <laughs> but the the deeper point here is the reason why kids had a bigger effect on her career than mine was not the actual biological burden of having them. It was rather the emotional desire to have more time with them. Right? Um, mm. So again, that's one where it's not exactly, you might say, well, it's biologically affected that women mind separation with their kids more. Right? But again, we are then getting into something much more, at least debatable. Or one where it's much harder to put your finger on than saying, look, well, of course it affects them more because they have to bear the kids. Again, I, I realize that there are some women who have harder pregnancies than my wife, although hers were not easy. Uh, but still, I, I mean, the main effect on career comes from wanting to actually reduce work uh, when, once you have kids. And of course, then I would also say, guess what? Our society is also much more supportive of women who want to reduce work when they have kids. Uh, our society is quite hostile to a man who says, well, now that I'm a dad, I don't want to work so hard anymore. It's like, what do you mean? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, again, this does not, the fact that I can go and name offsetting factors on the other side does not mean that we've got equality or anything like it or even performance adjusted equality. It does mean that we should be much more reticent before jumping to a conclusion, especially since on the cases where we really have good data and have examined it, it does seem like feminist complaints are just really overblown and unfair. Right. I do agree that there's a lot more nuance to it than, than either case. And, and certainly there's a lot of this like becomes overblown. Uh, something actually, this might be a good thing to do to, to step back. How would you, how would you define fairness? Yeah, that is a good question. And I mean, the ultimate answer, I would say, just like almost any moral term is there's no every any definition would either would would just be circular when people say define good. Well, like moral goodness, uh, moral positivity. Right? It's one where if you actually understand the term, then you realize that like most interesting terms in English, it cannot be actually defined for it cannot really be defined. Um, you know, of course, like in linguistic analysis and philosophy, they would say like define table surprisingly hard to find a table, right? But this one is much stronger because it really is just a separate category of its own. 
Uh, there is a famous point made by philosopher G. Moore on what he called the naturalistic fallacy. So anytime someone wants to define a moral value in terms of some descriptive thing, there is always another question you can ask that shows that it's not an adequate definition. You say, well, good just means pleasure. Huh. Well, can I ask the question, is pleasure good? And it seems that I can, and that's a meaningful question. Furthermore, if you just look throughout the history of ethics, you'll see a whole lot of people think pleasure's bad. There are puritanical views saying, pleasure, it's the worst thing in the world. Only evil would consider pleasure good. Like there, are, <laughs> there, there are aesthetic people, like there are monks who just try to live without pleasure. There's self-flagellation. People try to endure pain. And they'll say, well, that's to get pleasure ultimately. Is it? Probably not. So I'd say, you know, fairness is a moral term like goodness or rightness or virtue, where you can go and relate one moral concept to another moral concept. But if there's just someone who said, I do not understand what these moral terms mean, they are meaningless to me, it would just be hopeless. It would be like trying to describe what things look like to a person who's been blind their whole life. Right. But I think you can, I think you can give a directional bend to it. Let me, let me try to do this for you and you can correct me. Right. And I do want, do want to avoid oversimplifying things, but I think some level of simplification is, is, is worth doing. Sure. Let's try it. I think that you see fair, fairness primarily as like procedurally, right? So if there are two people with, um, with different kind of underlying psychological traits and, mm -hmm. You know, one of them is more successful and one of them is less successful. Due to that, you see that as basically fine, right? Right. Uh, as long as those so, people so have like, the same set of opportunities in front of them. There's a lot to that, although you, what I would say is, you know, suppose someone like in the prime of their life, they're struck by lightning and they die. And someone says, that was so unfair. It's like, huh, all right, I guess I can kind of understand the way that you're using the word there. But yeah. I mean, I would, I would specify that it's not just procedural, but it's also procedures that are being applied by other human beings. Although, again, that's not a perfect... Right. It's, it's only what we have control yeah. over. Yes. Uh, yeah, but again, I would, I would say this is not just me that is using this way. I say I'm trying to tap into a normal sense of what fairness means uh, along the lines of if two people had equal performance in an athletic event, then it should be a tie. Or if one did better than the other one in the athletic event, then the point who did better better should win. The person that contributed more to a business should get more, that kind of thing. Um, again, it's it's one where I, you know, I don't want to just have some eccentric notion of fairness and then be a judge in my own case and said, see, by my own definition, by my own standards, I win. Well, real convincing there. Instead, I'm trying to just go with a common sense definition of fairness held by a large majority of people. Uh, again, this would not uh, does not deal with the fanatic who just says everything has to be done my way or it's not fair. I mean, I also just say that person's so hard to please. There's no point trying. Right. Have you seen the Height research, Jonathan Height's research on on the moral foundations on oh, yeah, fairness yeah. specifically? Um, uh, yeah, and I would say actually I am familiar with multiple iterations of Jonathan Height's work. And if you go back to my old posts, I, I got him to engage several times. So mm. in particular, I think that he's quite wrong in thinking that there's a big difference between liberals and conservatives and that liberals, he says, only use two bases and conservatives use them all. And I say, actually, this is mostly just an artifact of your test and not include questions that tap into the other bases that 
liberals would care about. But even his own data actually really just showed a, a modest relative difference. It didn't in any way show close to liberals don't use loyalty, for example. Of course they use loyalty. Yeah, I agree. I agree on that point. But I do think I do think the finding that many people at least have a component of their view of fairness being defined by treating the downtrodden well, right? Especially if they're not responsible for their own actions. For example, like do do you think like the emo- the Americans with Disabilities Act is roughly? And I don't like the Americans with Disabilities Act, by the way. I should I should probably yeah, yeah. make that clear. But uh, do do you think that that act is is motivated by like the sentiment of fairness? People feel like it's making things more fair. Like the general population feels like it's making things more fair. I mean, I would say that it's probably more motivated by well-being. See, is that I'm trying to remember, is that Height's term for it? If we want to use stick to his framework, uh, care, care. I think care is his one. I think it's a lot more about care than it is about the other one. But uh, yeah, it's a, like, what do you think? So when you're looking at the American Disabilities Act, right? How does that really differentiate itself from like a universal basic income, right? I think people have a sense where if you've just kind of like been screwed over by bad luck, right? If you were born without a limb or something like that, right? People want, people consider that quote unquote unfair, right? And then maybe that differs from your definition of unfair and the definition of some other people's uh, uh, definition of unfair, right? But I think that is a moral sentiment, right? People want to basically like compensate people uh, for things that were basically out of their control. And that's something that is a kind of sentiment. Right. So I think in terms of Heights framework, both the ADA and UBI are primarily about care rather than fairness. Although I think you're right, there are some people who think about it in terms of fairness. Mostly when you push them, I think they start appealing to some kind of social contract theory and saying, well, it's unfair because we live in a society where we've all agreed to take care of each other and therefore people less fortunate are entitled to things. Uh, here, I would just have to go back to your standard critiques of social contract theory and say, well, if it really were true that there were a contract that people would agree to, you'd be right. But guess what? So there was no such contract. That's just a complete myth. It is a way really for people to convert arguments about care where you can say, well, there's a limit to this, to ones about fairness where there's a higher bar and it's like, well, if you agreed to it, then you are on the hook for it and you better do it. Right. So what's interesting is that I, I think I give gave off the impression at the start here that I disagree with you. In practice, I agree with you way more than I disagree with you. I just thought this was an interesting line of questioning. So we might pivot. Yeah, we might pivot to this. Uh, so you have this view of basically basically people would be a lot more understanding of uh, of your argument and of this definition of fairness if they actually just realize what was happening, right? If they just realize that actually, you know, there are all of these uh, downsides and society has all of these yeah. ways where it treats uh, men yeah. uh, worse. Yeah. And I mean, it is crazy to compare being a woman to being disabled, right? I think most feminists would if you did, did try to make that comparison, honestly. Yeah, so you end up with a situation. I mean, they're they're going to be mad anyway. But <laughs> Mar- marginal up- madness, yeah. <laughs> marginal madness. That that sounds like a good Substack name. <laughs> um, but all right. But so you have all these situations where people think there is a lot of unfairness, and they're not. And uh, why is that? Right? Why do they think that? 
Well, first of all, there's so much intimidation from feminists to avoid discussing this in a frank and evidence-based way. It's just hard to do it, right? They have an anger problem. Not all feminists, obviously, but especially feminist elites do try to rule by fear, which means that it's hard to have a productive conversation. So that is a big part of it anyway. I would also say, though, that as I mentioned in the essay, there's a lot of evidence of a cross-cultural norm that female well-being counts more. In other words, people care more than when women, especially when women are suffering, than when men are suffering. This norm of women and children first is not something that we invented in the, since the 1960s. It's been around for a really long time. It exists in any society that I know about anyway. Now, like Even in the Middle East, when you have great oppression of women, they describe it in terms of we are trying to protect women. We're really concerned about them. You might say that's all just made up, but probably on some level, a lot of people do actually believe it and say, look, the reason why we're veiling you is because we're really worried that something bad could happen to you if you're not veiled. We are your guardians. We, we, have your, we, we are responsible to make sure that nothing bad happens to Iranian women, uh, that kind of thing. So I think this pro-female bias of thinking that their well-being is more important than men's is another thing that makes it hard to have an open discussion. Because even to go and start doing the comparison makes it sound like you're a bad person who is breaking this norm that even if the suffering was equal, men should be happy to go and suffer for the sake of women. Yeah. So basically, you have this, you have this evolution towards neuroticism, and you can see it from the COVID lockdowns, right? And basically, people are much mm-hmm. more concerned about any kind of negative story that can be stirred up by the press. And... I don't know. Just what are your? Do you think that roughly aligns with this pattern, or is an easier explanation for this pattern? It's probably part of it. So, if you know, since I am a fan of personality research, it's true that having high anxiety is one facet of eroticism. Another one, though, is anger. And I think in the case of feminism, the anger is a bigger deal. I mean, we have a general rise in fear of somebody getting mad, getting mad at you. But in the case of feminism, it is an exceptionally angry movement where people just are so likely to flip out at you. But, you know, as I think I've mentioned on uh, my Substack a bunch of times, this is the only thing I've ever written on, right? A bunch of friends warning me, do not take to discuss this issue because it's going to ruin your life. I mean, I can go and say, let's get rid of public education. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. But then say, yeah, don't be a feminist. What are you out of your mind? Those people will destroy you. You know, I think part of this is their paranoia, but, it is true that the reactions that you risk provoking from feminists are just extraordinarily hostile. Uh, so far, so good, but I don't think it's going to last. Is that okay? So, so the so the reaction or like the expected reaction was overblown, right? I don't know. Did you get more hate on no, this, or have you gotten it's more hate so far weeks, than on your open borders a... book? Let's That's see. fair. That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, so the Open Borders book, I got a lot of anger from people who were anti-immigration for many years before. I barely got any additional anger when the book came out. So it's almost as if the anger spent itself on me and whoever really wanted to send something angry just didn't bother when the book came out. Uh, That's kind of a strange situation, Uh, but that's what happened there. Uh, It may well be that anti-immigration people are angrier about their issue than like that specific issue than feminists are about theirs. It's just that feminism is something that 
tends people tends to if you are someone who is a self-conscious feminist it's sort of on your mind almost all the time whereas for anti-immigration it's just not it's something that comes mm. up a few times a day so i think that's where you sort of have to take the integral of the anger right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah and like the people who are angry about immigration they have a lot of things to be worried about right now right i think a lot of feminists they're they're kind of so embedded within the elite that they're not even worried about the, the, the same kind of like operation security stuff that that a lot of right wingers are. It, it is really it is really quite striking. Uh, perhaps, although another thing going on is that so, the issues that right right wingers care about varies over time, and now anti wokeness is probably a lot bigger than anti immigration, uh, which is big improvement. Good job, right wingers. Switched over to something that you, that's reasonable to complain about. <laughs> I mean, I mean, what do you think of the kind of present anti woke movement? Right, just just very broadly, is it effective? Is it overreaching? Hmm. Here's what I would say. First of all, I would start by apologizing to the anti woke movement because they started raising concerns about ten years ago. And for quite a few years, I was saying, look, it's bad in universities. Otherwise, you're just looking around a huge world for a few scandals to get mad about. And this isn't going to affect normal people very much. But then the problem seemed to start growing at about 50% per year. And after 10 years of growing at 50%, what was a statistically small but emotionally aggravating problem became an actual problem. And I just did not see that coming. So yeah, I would just start by saying, you know, mea culpa, you guys really were the canaries in the coal mine. Or really, well, I guess the canary doesn't really warn you, he dies. But you know, you're the guy carrying the canary in the coal mine. And uh, so by the time, by really by 2020, that's when I noticed that people with totally apolitical jobs were suddenly having to do political brainwashing as a condition of employment. And that's when I said, oh my God, this stuff has gotten really bad. This isn't just a problem for professors. It's a problem for humans in our society. And it's terrible, especially that people who've never opted in to having to deal with this stuff now are stuck with it. Uh, in terms of the movement as it exists, so, you know, like, of course, there is a general tendency just to find the most outrageous anecdotes and harp on them in order to get results. It's also true this is almost the only way that people are able to get any attention for their cause. Uh, so I tend to judge people in the following way. If the problem is small and you make a huge deal out of it with vivid anecdotes, then I am not happy with you. If the problem is really big and you try to get people to realize how severe it is with vivid, emotionally affecting anecdotes, then I'll say, all right, well, you're doing the best you can to improve things given the ridiculous attention spans and emotionality of the broader audience. So yeah, so overall, I think the anti-woke movement is pushing back against something that has gotten quite bad and they were doing it before me. So my hats are off to them. And uh, in terms of whether it's going to work, uh, you know, there have been some cases of successful pushback. I think that Richard, Richard Hanenya is right. That really the problem that we have to go after is discrimination law itself. It's got to be weakened because yes. it is just because you know, it really is the, the origin of the problem it's one, it did take a while to get down the slippery slope, but we are there, and the law has been interpreted to the point where almost anything could be considered discrimination. And I think that these, you know, the, the, you know, any viable long-run remedy is going to be along the lines of 
putting in some actual legislative exceptions. So I've been suggesting a free speech exception for discrimination law so that you can no longer be sued for making political comments or jokes on the job or anywhere else, such that that is just not allowed as evidence in a discrimination case. This is just one way of doing it. You know, really, you know, any restrictions that you can put on it, anything that makes it harder to do it is a good idea in my book. Yeah, that, that's interesting because there is there has been sort of a rewriting right there, there's been sort of a rewriting of history and i think i think uh richard hanania who we both know has kind of uh, done a good job of re rewriting history or or correcting uh history to point out that there actually was a fight against mm-hmm. this right especially under reagan and there, there was an attempt to, to remove uh many of these overburdened or misinterpreted laws and and that attempt failed and just going back to Reagan, you can you can see quite an effective approach. And so when you're actually like when you're actually correctly, I think attributing uh, success or failure to libertarians, you can say like, okay, they they did overall. It was an overall failure, but it's not like they did not have battles that they won. So in the United States, yeah, yeah. So we have, in the United States, we have the original act, which is extremely vague, but suggests that colorblindness will be mandatory. And then a few years later, there's a Supreme Court case where Rehnquist wrote the dissent, quoting 1984, saying, wait a second, you, we have an act saying that you cannot consider race, and now you are interpreting it to mean that you can consider race as long as it goes in the direction that you want. So that was one of the original big issues was, you know, it's, like, the law seemed like it was a spanning consideration of race, but very soon it, came, it turned into it is perfectly fine to discriminate against whites, just not against other groups. Then there were multiple other strange expansions. Sexual harassment laws originally not legislative. It's just, well, obviously, if you can't discriminate on the, on, on the basis of gender, then it's also illegal to go and create an uncomfortable workforce or workplace. It's like, hmm, uh, that sounds super subjective. How do you even know? Who's to say what that counts as? But the way the law evolved was really if aggrieved people are unhappy with the situation, if the people in the protected groups don't like it, then we're going to bend over backwards to be sympathetic to their complaints. Always with the limit of the jury will laugh at your complaint, then it doesn't work, right? But over time, the sense of humor got pushed further and further out, and now we really are at a situation where almost anything could be considered discrimination, and uh, when and you know, including, of course, your political speech including jokes. So uh, we are now in this very oppressive environment. But why did that happen? Like, what, what's the mechanism of action here? Ah, ah I see where you're going with this. Yeah, so uh, I assume you're familiar with social desirability bias? Yes. Just give a quick yes. summary for the audience. So it's the idea. Yes, so social desirability bias is one of the most neglected enlightening concepts in all psychology, it says this, when the truth sounds bad, people lie. And when lies become ubiquitous enough, people often start to sincerely believe absurdities because they just don't hear anything else. All right. Now, uh, for a long time in our society, it has been, it sounds really good to say that you're doing anything about racism or sexism, which means that anything that goes against that tends to sound bad, no matter how truthful or reasonable it may be. Right. So it is much easier in our society to say we are going to root out every possible form of racism and sexism than to say 
well, let's be mindful of the possibility of false accusations because there are unscrupulous people in this world who, if you say we're going to do anything possible, will take that as a green light for abuse, right? And that second thing is really hard to say. I mean, I've talked to people who are at workplaces where there is an ongoing witch hunt against racism and sexism, even though people are super sensitive, super conscious, super sympathetic. And at the same time, everyone knows that there are multiple cases of totally false accusations being spread around, and yet there is no publicity that the publicity publicity for that. The people involved keep it very quiet, and they know they better keep it quiet because what kind of a person would go and openly say that they are subject they are suffering from false accusations of racism? Well, you'd have to be a racist to complain about something like that, right? Certainly to make a stink about it, given that Burn the witch. to other people who have sincere compl- complaints. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but, it, but it's one where, like, whenever you talk about raising the burden to prove, people will then truthfully say, well, but this could lead someone who has a genuine complaint to not talk. See, yeah, I know that. It could also lead someone who has a fake complaint to not talk. That's the inherent trade-off <laughs> of having standards. Right. And I think it's also very important to to understand the underlying sentiments once again, right? Because as much as people weren't promising explicitly uh, uh, equal outcomes, I think a lot of people intuited a promise of equal outcomes, right? A lot of just like normies intuited a promise. This was a real like liberal, even like libertarian story, right? If you leave everything to it, you know, we'll get racial equality uh, as long as we uh, don't have, as long as we don't have discrimination. And I think that this is, I mean, there's there's a, there's a phrase uh, on the on the uh, right wing on the on the quote unquote deep right, which is like the the woke are more correct than the mainstream, right? Of basically saying like, look, you're not going to get these things, you're not going to get equality of outcome, even if you do have like a maximally fair system, right? You are going to have differences in ambition, you are going to have differences in preferences, you are going to have differences in culture. And so if you ever promise this, all you're going to do is like load on more and more bullshit right now. I think this is less of a critique of the libertarians than it is the critique of, you know, like the classical liberal types. But I think we do have to basically try to understand like what is and I think that your book kind of does this right of how to sell people on like basically controlling for factors, right, controlling for ambition and making the case, because I think maybe you can say, all right, if you look at the moral foundations, if you look at like the, the maximally abstracted level, right, you do, you can decrease the concern for equality of outcome. But there are people who do like want equality of outcome, and, and you have to make a, a case against it. And you have made a case, you have made a stronger case, but in the popular public, right, maybe, maybe this would change if everyone was listening to Brian Kaplan, right? But how do you basically improve <laughs> your messaging so that people stop People, people stop pursuing equality of outcome. It's very tough, again, just because of that social desirability bias. I mean, you know, the way that I always do it is with examples like, I'm not an Olympic athlete. I'm not in the NBA. Is that because the system's unfair? Obviously, it is totally possible to have highly unequal outcomes despite a fair system because of differences in ability and differences in motivation. So this is one where I think most people, you know, normal people, people who are not fanatics will go and say, yes, yes, of course. And in fact, if you go and look at the original laws, they do sort of act like, yeah, well, that could be. But at the same time, they are unwilling to be very forthright about it. And that was the problem. So if the presumption is that all inequalities are unfair until proven otherwise, 
then it is going to be really hard to resist the push for equalization. If the resumption, on the other hand, is things are fair unless proven otherwise, that gives you a very different outcome. So in a way, just flipping the presumption would be a good result, I think. So when you talk about social desirability bias, I kind of get the sort of instinct, and I, and I don't want to mischaracterize you, right? But at least this is the impression. Mm-hmm. It seems really f- similar to the thing you were talking about before where people complain about human nature, right? I, I think that you, as a kind of like, quote unquote, elite, right? You have to take in the assumption that there's going to be social desirability bias, mm-hmm. right? And you want to build your messaging and your approach to basically attacking and taking over institutions. You have to build your approach around that. Right. So, so, and, and I think this is something that kind of libertarians have been historically not too good at. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I, I want to take like, what is, what is the messaging? What is the kind of institutional approach to basically take a look at, um, take a look at maybe the, the excesses, the overreaches uh, of anti-discrimination law and really make that sort of maybe make a social desire a socially desirable case for it right what's the socially desirable case for uh for the free speech exception or for or for basically the limiting anti-discrimination laws right well so one thing that's worth pointing out is to this day affirmative action is very unpopular so it does not seem like that is a case of elites just responding to public pressure it seems like that really is a case of elites ignoring public opinion and going further because they generally want to. Uh, so that right. and is because the, there's an entire legal regime here. Uh, pardon? And because there's an entire legal regime here. Right. But you know, the, you know, the reason why the legal regime was created uh, despite public opinion was because elites thought that would be a good idea. So yeah, I sure. think the first step for social desirability bias would be to go like to weapon, uh, to use social desirability bias to improve things. We'd be to say this was, uh, you know, this always was and continues to be something opposed by a vast majority of the American people because it actually makes racism and sexism required, which was the opposite of what the point of the laws was. All right. So that's one easy thing to say is just to demonize affirmative action as being a racist, sexist policy that was put in against the will of the people and remains against the will of the people. That sounds very much like a standard demagogic thing that you would say to win people over. It's also pretty much true. Uh, so there would be that. Uh, then in terms of other, other approaches, um, something else that I've been thinking about is, you know, what is the point of this rhetoric about human freedom in general? Right? When someone says, we demand our freedom, freedom, you know, the brave hearts, uh, all of the Scotsmen cheering, you know, freedom. You know, what is the point <laughs> of that? And I say, look, here's the point. Freedom sounds good, right? But a lot of the things that people will do with their freedom sound bad. Therefore, Mm. if you want to promote freedom of choice, it is just rhetorically much more effective to keep beating the drum of freedom and just try to distract people from the ugly truths about what people will do with their freedom. So if you think that people should be free to buy pornography, right, you could either sit around and try to say, well, pornography may seem degrading and has these problems, but on the other hand, like some people enjoy it and it's not that bad. And what about people who can't get a date? It's gives the, you know, like you say something like that and it sounds pretty lame. Or you could just say freedom of speech. 
right? The freedom <laughs> of expression, right? Like it is not anyone's business, but the person himself, whether or not he reads this stuff, no one was forced to do it, right? That is, mm. I think, the least bad way to defend the freedom of pornography. And the same goes for so many other things that people do with their freedom. Uh, again, the honest case would, would be actually, well, look, a lot of people really enjoy it. The people that do it get well compensated. There's some people that don't like it, but yeah, if like, they, how about they just don't watch it? And that basically solves most of the problem. Not all, but tough luck. That would be the more, that would be the more straightforward one, but beating the drum for freedom is a lot more effective. And I think beating the drum for freedom is also probably one of the better ways of getting limitations on discrimination law saying, look, a person should not be free to speak their mind because it could, that's discrimination. Ha, huh, ridiculous. Oh, you know, we're just like, oh, like he told a joke. Telling jokes is a crime. What kind of a police state are we in? Freedom. Right. So I think that's effective. Uh, something else that I mentioned is very important in terms of using social desirability bias to promote better policies is just harping on hypocrisy of your opponents. If you really look at the news, one of the main ways that you it is possible to deflect self-righteous fanatics is, is not by saying that they're self-righteous fanatics, not by saying their policies are terrible or would lead to terrible results. If you can just find some little things they did that are inconsistent with their self-righteousness and then make fun of them, that is one of the best defenses we have. All of the arguments made by people like Alex Epstein about how fossil fuels actually are, you know, bring a lot more good than bad have been nowhere near as influential as people just saying, oh, Al Gore has a, has a mansion where he uses 20 times as much electricity as a normal American. What about that, hypocrite? <laughs> Intellectually, that, yeah. is a, that is a crummy <laughs> argument. Rhetorically, though, it's awesome. You know, very similar case where you, know, you had the governor of California pursuing extremely oppressive COVID policies, but uh, they're just saying, hey, we want this is oppressive. This is terrible. Cost-benefit analysis, the costs are way bigger than the benefits. That barely got anywhere. But saying, that jerk went and ate in a restaurant against his own rules. Lousy, stinking restaurant-eating governor. That went way farther. The guy probably had, had to face a recall election over that restaurant meal, whereas just the fact that he went and wasted an enormous amount of of human life uh, by locking it up inside barely got any pushback for that so harping on hypocrisy is also rhetorically very effective um if it makes you feel dirty yeah it kind of makes me feel dirty too uh, i'm grateful for the, for the people that do it for a good for a good cause but i see the main thing is be very careful making sure that you're that you've got a good cause before unleashing these horrible weapons of rhetoric because they can just as easily use for bad Yeah, you, you seem like a pretty good politician. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, so. I, I occasionally people have said that. I don't really know how to take it. I know it would really hurt me deep inside to do this kind of thing. On the other hand, when I see people doing it well for a cause I agree with, I don't criticize them. Uh, you know, someone were to say, well, what does that really prove? I say, yeah, it doesn't really prove anything. But guess what? He couldn't make any headway making a good argument. <laughs> that guy's actually successfully pushing back against the forces of oppression, whereas what do I do? I craft intellectually sound, elegant arguments that will persuade the very best minds on earth and zero other people. Yeah, I've been making this case as well. I've been making this case 
that there needs to be basically like a realist approach to uh, to domestic politics. Like people talk about a realist approach to foreign policy. Like we don't even have a realist approach to yeah. our own government. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, make sure actually, you. Make I sure want you... to introduce this meme. I wasn't sure, and then you, you brought this up, so I think this is a good idea. Were you scrolling? <laughs> Yeah, uh, all good now? Uh, yes, but I better go back 15 seconds. Yeah, so I was scrolling I was scrolling Twitter before coming here, and I know we both follow Robin Hansen. Mm-hmm. Uh, have, you, have you seen this meme that he recently posted, uh, which is basically like um, the autist, the, the psychopath, and like the normie? Did you see this? No, I, I, I missed it. What, what, what's the joke? Okay, so the main, uh, okay, let, let me just find it again, at, at Robin Hansen, okay. So, uh, okay, so basically you have three, uh, you have three, you have three characters, right? You have, you have the normie, uh, who basically applies like social, social norms to the autist. It's like a rock, paper, scissors meme, right? The normie applies ah. social norms to the autist, the autist. Uh, the autist sees through the psychopath, and the psychopath manipulates the normie. Ah, I'll, I'll link it in the show notes for the audience. <laughs> All right, but let's let's not spend let, let's not spend too much time on this. But that it, the, basically, like, okay, the point I want to get to with this though is basically like, do you think that there's there's this kind of like cyclical pattern where where the amount of like social manipulation or, or social desirability bias go, goes up and down? Or do you think it's more like a general, like straight line trend? Which one do you think is closer to the truth? Yeah, cyclical makes a lot more sense. I mean, we know in general from the history of religion that we go through long cycles of fanaticism and apathy. You can see this throughout the whole history of every major religion that I know of. Whenever you're near the peak of fanaticism, it's hard to believe that you aren't. This isn't part of an end of an internal trend. But that's always been wrong before. It's just an illusion generated by being surrounded by fanatics temporarily. So yeah, I mean, I would say that right now we, there is a temporary outpouring of woke fanaticism. They're not going to be able to sustain this at such a high level. Although one thing that fanatics do is they institutionalize their views so that even when the fervor has died down, the oppression continues. So that's the downside of it. Many such cases. I think that something that in this case I think has been underrated by libertarians is basically trying to exert an, a broader, I don't want to say political, but a kind of social force on institutions, right? So if you have one political movement that is willing to make decisions to say boycott businesses, to have social media campaigns against individuals, right? And you have another movement that isn't right. That's going to drastically shift the incentive for each of those companies. So mm-hmm. there are people, uh, maybe like Richard Hanania, who thinks that you should ha- wield basically like private power or social power against uh, against the woke or against uh, basically against other people on the left. And there are people more like Greg Lukianoff, who is like a true free speech absolutist, thinks that you shouldn't even have social coercion, right? So, so which one of those do you think is closer to the truth or like well, closer yeah. to what you would prefer? 
I mean, I think what Hineni is pushing, honestly, is deregulation and scale back of what government is doing rather than what you're saying. So I'm mean, like all in favor of anything to moderate, water down, or abolish the existing laws that are promoting this stuff. I mean, I'm not talking about laws here, though. I think Hanania had this post where he basically said uh, he, he got banned for, from mm-hmm. Twitter, or not banned, he got uh, suspended from Twitter for something. And he said, I'm surprised it, it took this long. If I was in control of Twitter, I would basically ban everyone who's woke. Mm-hmm. And, and so what do you think of basically, like, there's this distinction, right, between using the law, which I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm mostly in agreement with you and, and with Richard about, about the kind of scale back that has to be the first step. But what about using basically social coercion, right? What do you think about using like private private tools and private power to uh, to make a political point? Right. In principle, I have no objection as long as you are not actually doing it through the government. I would say that I don't think it's likely to be very effective. But if you could pull it off, really, yeah. You know, well, like here's the thing: is that you know, as you know, Hanenya pointed out. The left just cares a lot more about politics, getting people who are right wing to go and boycott something or to create their own social media platform and kick people disagree off. It's just not going to be very successful. They just don't have the passion or attention span to do it very successfully. Right. So I think actually, I mean, a lot of what's going on, of course, is there are many right wingers calling for government to go and censor things like Twitter. And for them, you know, besides the principle, say, look, remember, these, the people that are, that are going to be enforcing these laws, 90% of them will be Democrats. Probably two-thirds of those will be woke Democrats. So like, you're just, cre- you're just uh, creating weapons, putting them in the hands of some people that are the very people you're worried about. So bad idea. I, I don't think most people – I don't think most conservatives want to, want to uh, censor stuff on Twitter. I think they want to, they want to basically do like a free speech amendment to it, right? Yes, they want yes. to – Yes, yeah, so what you say? The... You know, Twitter, Twitter is not allowed to go and uh, and and kick right wing people off, for example. Yeah, like like one yeah. thing you can yeah. complain a lot right. about mm-hmm. uh, governments run things, right? But the thing with government run things is that they're under the First Amendment, right? In the end, they're under the First Amendment, and you can say like, okay, you have like this supposed standard of neutrality. How well is it applied? But I think it's actually applied quite well, right? You you do have First Amendment case law, mm-hmm. right? And to me, at least, from maybe you can say this is naive, but I think it's held up. Mm-hmm. What I so, would say, so yeah, not- yeah. So so again, like I would say it's you know, held held up well in the broader society, in universities, then not really. So in, in universities, there is now a ton of brainwashing that they try to ram down your throats. And if you say, hey, this is violating my free speech rights, you complain, but not much is going to come of it. Uh, I mean, as to whether they're actually going to start firing professors for reviews or so on, yeah, that probably is not so likely. I mean, I guess I give it like 20% chance that in the next 20 years, they manage to break over that barrier. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of what you're talking about, of basically treating social media like public utilities, I mean, this is, again, I think there is some conservative support for this. And yeah, I would just say, look, uh, Regardless of the principle of the matter, just remember the people enforcing these laws are going to be people that are hostile to you, and they are really going to primarily be using it, using that power you know, to promote, them, promote their own views, not yours. I mean, your views really, in, the, in their mind, aren't even really speech. You know, there's the slogan of, you know, our speech is violence, their violence is speech. You know, it's a, it's a intimidating <laughs> slogan. Right. And I don't know, do you probably have a better tell of this than me. Do people actually believe that or is it just cynical? 
hmm, the people that say the slogan, I think that they are you know, sarcastically referring to a reality that they see. On term, you know, in terms of whether anyone really believes that their speech is violence, hey, you've got a bunch of slogans. You know, white silence is violence. Anyone who sits around and eats dinner and isn't fighting racism at the same time is, in fact, guilty of racism. So, again, you know, these are views that are primarily held by small groups of fanatics, although small groups of fanatics punch way above weight in terms of influence. Right. And I mean, this has just been this has just been my approach and my challenge with libertarianism as well, is that it just. I think on a kind of practical human nature level, just at, maybe this is not a critique of you in particular, but it's it's just been lacking, right? The the fact is that you kind of want to send people towards governments to basically create these sort of incentive shifts to have these, uh, for lack of a better term, structural biases, right? And, and you if. And what's kind of ironic is that if you want to actually affect libertarianism, well, you have to create these structural biases for libertarianism, right? And to me, there's, there just hasn't been a very good institutional strategy. And that's been the kind of longer arc of what I've been trying to trying to quiz you about, basically, right? So, so you see, you have like a very good understanding of, of political economy. You have a very good understanding of basically politics as it is. But I do want to cohere that basically into a solid plan. Hello? Yep, I can hear you again. I hear you. Okay, so did, you, did you miss the last yep, part? I sure did. Okay. Basically, I was talking about how the long arc or like the, the arc of this podcast, the, the kind of narrative that I've been trying to set up is like there are a lot of libertarians who I think increasingly have a good understanding of political economy and human nature and basically how politics actually works, right? A real, realist theory of politics, right? Of domestic politics. And what I've been trying to get out of that from basically every libertarian who's come on is like a plan, right? How what things, what approaches that libertarians have been afraid of doing in the past, especially with regards to institutions, with regards to media, with regards to companies, with regards to, uh, with regards to bureaucracies that they haven't tried before? What, what do you think needs to change? First and foremost, nothing we've been talking about. Uh, rather, I think a long-term libertarian problem has just been low friendliness, being hostile, being dismissive of other people. I say this not because I'm so great, but because I realize my flaws and try to improve. You know, libertarians have a long history of having a superior attitude and talking down to people. And that is a great way to lose friends and not influence people. So like, <laughs> like whenever people say, like, how can libertarians make our arguments better? Actually, it's like your arguments are really good. It's the delivery that's bad. We just have to figure out better ways of talking to other people. A lot of it, of course, is making friends first before you try to talk about politics. Right? If you just show up and say, hi, I'm a libertarian. I've got a bunch of views. Let's talk about them. Almost anyone will be alienated. If instead you just establish a warm friendship with someone and then at some point organically the topic comes up, you just have a lot more credibility to that person. The old saying of no one cares what you know until they know that you care 
that makes a lot of sense. So in terms of like the easiest thing that can be done with existing rhetorical resources, it's just to turn up that dial of friendliness all the way to Mormon. It's a <laughs> way that we can think about it. Yeah, just, you know, the, I was in a Mormon Cub Scout group when I was a kid, even though I was not a Mormon. So I've got a lot of good Mormon friends. I know how they operate. I mean, if you just think about how the Mormon church took out ads in the playbill of the Book of Mormon musical making fun of them, right? <laughs> that's how friendly they are, right? And that's why almost everybody at least doesn't, almost no one dislikes Mormons. They're just too hard to dislike. If libertarians could just get into that niche of people who are known as being friendly and likable, I think that's the biggest and easiest change that we can make. In terms doesn't that of, kind of yeah. contradict? Uh, doesn't that kind of contradict some of the results that we have about wokeness or about uh, about mm-hmm. uh, bureaucracies and COVID restrictions, right? Like mm-hmm. especially wokeness, right? We talked about earlier how most people dislike affirmative action, how they've been successful in changing institutions to align with them other anyway. Mm-hmm. So, aren't we like not even winning? on the things that people already agree with us on? Right. So that's why I said I'm just starting there. There's a lot going on in the world. It's a complicated place. Um, in terms of something that the typical libertarian can do, important to remember, like, people do not like woke antipathy and woke attitude. They may be browbeaten by it, but, you know, those, but you know, that is alienating people, and that's one of the main reasons that we're able to go and push back against them. Uh, in terms of what you know, typical libertarian should do, I think it really is turning that friendliness dial up. In terms of people with their hands closer to the levers of power, then it's a lot more complicated. Those are people where, like I said, just using that demagogic rhetoric um, may be the best bet they have. Uh, just going and pointing out the hypocrisy of your opponents. There's probably a lot to that. Uh, so, um, you know, so those are things that also probably improve effectiveness in terms of what else you can do. uh, hmm. Let's see. I mean, I don't know. I mean, those, those are at least the main things that come to mind. Of course, that's only the beginning. Uh, You know, you know, like, of course, you know, a lot of this is there's a basic catch 22 problem where in order to get changes, you need to get some other changes first, which are not in your control. Right. So that's why I would say that focusing on just improving the public perception of people hold this view is a big deal. Uh, not the only thing, of course. I think that in many of th- this is actually kind of weird, right? It's it's quite different from a lot of libertarian thought mm-hmm. now, right? So so you believe you basically believe very strongly in the democratic case, right? In the case that people can basically be convinced, and no, that that's the main. You know what, I mean? what I would say is look. I don't think that the best presentation of the world is going to persuade everyone or even a majority. It's just a matter of what's the best we can do. Yeah, I mean, like I have enough experience in failing to persuade people. I'm under no illusions of my own persuasiveness. I know there's some people that are a lot more persuasive than me, but even they are pretty disappointed by the results. The main thing is just that you know, you've got to do the best with what you got and take consolation in the fact that, that being a public speaker or being an intellectual or being someone active on social media. It's not like being a monk. It's not like you give up all their good things in life in order to go and serve purely the cause of virtue. You can still have a nice quality of life while doing something out while doing something that 
may improve things, but then again, maybe you're just beating your head against a wall. That's harsh reality. I think that the main critique here, and this is a critique that's come, it, it's come from so many places, right? It's come from the right, it's also come from people like Peter Thiel, who might call themselves anarcho-capitalists or might have once called themselves anarcho-capitalists, right? You have this fundamental critique, which is that the right fundamentally struggles, or especially the libertarian right, fundamentally struggles to build these institutions, mm-hmm. right? And that I mean, basically... I'd, I'd say that libertarians are great at building institutions. They're just not so good at building a mass following. Libertarians are fantastic at creating think tanks of every description. Right? We're, we're great at coming up with group blogs. We've got a lot of institutional strength. Of you know, What we lack is actually having millions of people who are into these ideas. Wait, so, so you think if libertarianism was significantly more popular, then we wouldn't be dealing with uh, the woke stuff nearly as much? Well, I mean, that's not what I was saying. It's probably, okay, true, sorry, probably sorry. true also. I'm saying if it was a lot more popular, then policy would be more libertarian. And yeah, one of the things that would be different would be wokeness. There'd be a lot of other things that would be different. And of course, it depends upon how much more popular. Yeah, like I think that if libertarian views are majority views, then yeah, we'd have a very libertarian society. There'd still be some deviations. I mean, again, in a society like that, it might be that you'd have a libertarian populace getting policy even more libertarian than they want because, as usual, the people that have the most extreme views wind up getting the most influence. So here's the thing. This is the catch-22 that I keep running into, is that... Okay, so there's this argument about communication and messaging and basically being an effective politician. And then there's these stats about, or, or like not even stats, but just like the simple reality that a lot of woke policies, a lot of woke preferences are unpopular, but they're nonetheless in power, right? Mm-hmm. So we run into this kind of circle and I've try- been trying to navigate right. us out of the circle for a bit. I don't think I've heard a lot from you that would actually change the ability to influence institutions in a way that would make them like less quote unquote woke. Hmm. Well, let me think about it. Th- think about it this way. Public opinion about wokeness varies from state to state in the states where the public is most anti-woke, like in Florida or Texas, we see a lot more successful pushback in the states where the public is much more woke, like California or New York or Massachusetts then we see almost no pushback, right? So that's the sense in which public opinion clearly does matter. Uh, there is the puzzle of why is it that even in a state like Florida, it's still an influential movement despite public opinion. And that's mm. where I would say, yeah, well, probably we got to go back to that Hanenya story about how the left just cares more. Is that... I don't know. I'm skeptical. I, I do think the left cares more, but I think there's much more to it. I think there's a much more of a strategy. There's much more of a realistic uh, focus, or at least I don't know if they're consciously thinking about this, but yeah. I think their strategy is just simply uh, more effective of basically creating these moral crusades over and over again. Uh, yeah, you know, I hesitate to call that a strategy. I think that it's more of a cacophony pushing in a certain direction. I, I don't think it's conscious. I don't think it's organized. Yeah, it's not, as it's much not as, a strategy. Yeah. Again, like, you know, I think that if it really were a conscious strategy, they would be more focused and they would also avoid saying things that would antagonize a lot of people. They would 
they would be they, again they would be more of let's push on this issue to this degree and then get ensconced and then wait give people a little breathing time and then push some more seems like a lot of the pushback is coming because of poor woke impulse control where once they start getting some successes then they just keep trying to push and push and push uh, and at that point eventually people do notice and get annoyed with them and try to do something back to them right but i think that what's happening is that's that is actually rather fleeting mm-hmm. right so you have pushback you you have these waves over and over again of conservative pushback and then like just look where we are now right so the conservative pushback seems to be not very effective and i think that's a i'll put my cards on the table here i think that's a governing problem right i think there are specific tactics that can be done uh basically just the effective use of power right that is not being done and that this is leading to direct consequences for for either right wing or for libertarian politics, right? You have these situations where, for example, just like the establishment of the FDA, right? And I think now the FDA is quite unpopular. All these public health agencies are quite unpopular and distrusted now. But you have the establishment of something like that that can consistently wield power over time, that can turn people who don't care into people whose jobs depend on them caring, mm-hmm. right? So when, when, when like Hanania says like liberals care more, and, and actually I don't think he even disagrees with this, right? But when Hanania says liberals care more, I don't think that's coming from the ether, right? I think that's coming from an organized strategy. For example, like I know so many like just completely like normie people who just get converted to like not even like dogmatic, not even like woke people, but just people who, who like follow along and take all of these left-wing presumptions for granted because they work at, at like a, a federal bureaucracy. Or because they work at like at like a charity that has these kind of movements, right? So I think that like it's the Neil Postman quote of like it's hard to convince someone of something that their job de- uh, depends on them not not n- understanding, right? You have so many of these situations where I think that's basically um, manipulation. There's no really better words for it. Is just a more effective strategy, and that using government power or using power in general, right? It can be like private private power, just has to be done and it's go you're going to be ruled by someone who uses that power and if you want a more libertarian future you do have to use that power yeah i mean it's a very tempting view of things i just don't think that it's correct i mean you can just look at universities Why isn't it correct? well so let's take a look at universities we got public universities we got private universities private universities get plenty of government money but still they have a much higher share of private funding in terms of the wokeness of the faculty if anything it's probably worse at private universities so you know there's one case where you'd say like how exactly is it that self-interest is giving us the right prediction? Again, or like if you think about people working in government jobs or charities, it's a lot more about the kind of people that go into those jobs or people that are that are just predisposed to like this stuff. Um, you know, so, I mean, I think it's, it is much more about selection than about the institution somehow shaping people. And again, that is the problem is that when you have people who disagree with this stuff get power, like you might think, well, then their movement will go and push them to go and, and, and push that to the hilt. But in fact, that isn't what we see. It is much more common for especially conservatives to campaign against woke abuse. And once they get power, then it's like, yeah, well, I got power. So I don't really need to actually do much about that thing or maybe just take right. new token token measures. But, you know, I don't think that it makes sense to blame the institutions. I think you say, well, it's the people themselves who just don't actually care that much. And why don't they care that much? Because they can go and get office without with, while, while speaking, making lip service and then not doing much. I think that is much more of what's going on, which you know, when conservatives have bad ideas, so often they do, 
then they tend to fall short and not, not, not implement them because they've got this ADHD and apathy. When they got good ideas, they also tend to not fall, to, to fall short. On the other hand, left, whatever, whatever ideas they have, they tend to push through more because it is more of a religion for them. Um, I remember when I was interviewing Richard Nenio, I was saying, like, can we go and apply your model to the Middle East and say that Islamist fanatics, though a small minority of the population, push way above weight because they care more? And he's like, yeah, exactly. Right? And that's a good way of understanding politics in the Middle East. Why is it that Islamists seem to wield so much power if they're not a large majority of the population? And the answer is they do have great overrepresentation among people that are ready to die for their cause. Uh, so it's the same general mechanism in my view. So do you think we should be creating more libertarian fanatics? <laughs> uh, you, let's see. Uh, I'm very reluctant to say that. I'm like just anti-fanaticism. I think it's really important to be a reasonable person in terms of what the consequences would be. Uh, maybe. You know, it's, I mean, I'd say this is one where there's a critical mass that you got to get. You know, if you just have a few, then it's totally impotent. If you could get a, if you could get a sufficiently large number, then it could actually improve things. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe. On one hand, your reasoning is quite sound, and I mean, part of this is also just that I, I share more kind of values, more kind of axioms with you than I think most conservatives do. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think that this. I, I, I've been kind of, I've been kind of been mugged by reality. It, it's very funny, right? People say like conservatives are, are liberals mugged by reality. I think in the past few decades, libertarians have kind of gotten mugged by reality the hardest, right? In terms of the vast expansion of state bureaucracies, lockdowns, wokeism, mm-hmm. right? And, and the, the kind of quote unquote repudiation in the Republican party. And on one hand, I get those critiques, right? And on the other hand, I, I kind of do want libertarianism to redeem itself and actually be effective. And there are a lot of uh, those axioms that I want to, that I agree with, right? So I, I'm in this tricky position where I kind of want to summon, I, I want to summon the next libertarian strategy. But on one hand, a lot of cases, the, the more mainstream conservative strategies seem to make more sense to me. On the other hand, there there is this kind of description right of of things as they are that seems to comport a lot more with the libertarian at least like policy perspective right so so you have this like fundamental trade-off i think this is this is the the fundamental trade-off is is something like message mindset fit right you have like this mindset where if you're all united around it where if you're all believing and passionate in it then it basically like it creates that motivation it's this flywheel that works itself and if you have talented people in it, you can build institutions and you can most importantly win, right? And the trade-off to that is when you go into that that mode, which is maybe more relational, maybe more um, what Julia Galef would call like a soldier mindset, right? But an effective soldier, your, your, your trade-off there is you become weaker at discerning reality, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a trade-off that libertarianism has struggled to deal with? And do you think that that's a trade-off that maybe should go a bit more to the soldier, soldier direction in terms of libertarianism? Yeah, I mean, I would say that for such a small movement, the soldier direction is really pretty ineffective. You know, my view is, in terms of influence, the best thing for libertarians to do is probably to feed arguments that are, you know, to 
people on either side that are actually open to those arguments. So, you know, like, so like I work on immigration, housing policy. I mean, I'm happy to go and just give these arguments to people of whatever side that are reasonable and hope that they do something with it. I just don't think that we have the numbers to be all that influential on our own independently. So I think that that soldier option is really kind of hopeless anyway. In terms of libertarians being mugged by reality, I mean, I think I would just say, look, the mugging has been nonstop. Nothing much has changed. It's always been a very unpopular view. <laughs> uh, so you can either take that as good news or bad news. Uh, you know, there is a tendency, of course, whatever is the latest thing, that's, that proves something. And my view is now, like, it's just like one other observation. If we just take a look at the long run. We can see the libertarian views have been very unpopular for a very long time. Uh, they've had a very, they've had a small amount of mainstream influence uh, indirectly through other parties, uh, and that's what we've been able to get. You know, it's not to say so. Some of the problem is marketing, and I think we could have done better there. A lot of the problem is just that the ideas are intrinsically unappealing to psychologically normal humans. Um, so it's one where, on the one hand, you don't want to tell yourself that there's nothing you can do to improve. On the other hand, to tell yourself the fact the world doesn't listen to me shows that I'm wrong. That's another huge mistake. I, I guess this is the crucial weakness of framing it as libertarianism, right? Because I, I don't think libertarianism is the only movement that has been sort of down in the dumps because of this. Uh, I think even I think like basically most material most material politics has been sort of screwed over, right? In the past in the past decade, especially. What, what do you mean, there what do you mean by material politics? Politics that is focused on on like material wait like basically like politics that is focused on like how much money people have what resources people have right like socialism is kind of like this right like um uh the people who want universal health care i mean they saw a surge in like 2016 and then they've been kind of backing down but in the long arc of things in the long arc of things socialism has been kind of just on a on a sad decline as well right uh, this kind of new there, there is like more energy in the in the kind of working class right wing movement but they're also like like what do they have to show for it right they they've kind of maybe the reason why they've gotten energy is because they as like a people have been gotten have been like screwed over the most recently right like so, so there's a kind of a downtrend in all material politics right so it, it's it seems to me like just people who are trying to make like like a case that is not entertainment and is like not not like not like a fantasy. I've just been have have just been like losing con- continuously for quite a while now. I mean, I guess I just see politics as always that always that way, and very little emphasis upon getting practical results. Um, so no, but that's, that's again, not that's not the same thing, right? You can make like false arguments, but you yeah. can at least like make the argument, right? FDR was someone who got a lot of results. Maybe you think those were bad results. Maybe you think those are bad ideas, but that was. There's no other way to characterize that than a politics of, of, of materials, right? Of, of real things happening, of doing things in the physical world, right? Instead, you have all of this basically like fantasizing about racism or about, I mean, even the anti-woke movement kind of like falls into this, right? Maybe maybe they're correct, right? Maybe they're they're more correct, but they're also basically, their politics is based on refuting these fantasies, right? They're still not based on basically like doing things in the real world and making these like observations of things as they are. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I would just say this language just seems so vague. I don't know whether it's right or wrong. 
What, what do you mean vague? Like, okay, so so there are, there are policies that, or there there are ways to campaign that are focused on changing things in the real world, right? That are, that are primarily focused on observing things and changing those observed things, and there are policies that are more based on fantasy. And in the past, I mean, even over like 60, 70 years, right? In the past uh, several decades, there has been a higher concentration of, or and higher effectiveness of campaigning based off of those fantasies than based off of policies that would change material measurable things. I, I don't think so that's big at all, right? So it's like, it's like the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade, is that material or is that fantasy? Uh, I would I would say that 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 is an exception, but I, I Maybe, don't but in any way characterize it as monolithic. But I don't think it's one hundred percent fantasy. Right. Sorry, but is that material or is it fantasy? I don't even know what, uh, the classification that you, that you would. Assign. I think it's material. Right, so that counts as material. All right, and so you know, like you know, invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan are those material or are those fantasy? Like war on mm, that's an interesting. That yeah, war on terror is that material or fantasy? That that's very interesting, right? Because there's very material downsides, but it's like marketed off of fantasy, right? It's, yeah, it's yeah, very like, like, interesting. You know, like we, we we burned a couple trillion dollars and ruined a couple countries. All right, so is that material or or not? That that that's the extent to which I'm just confused by the categories. I don't know how to classify. Okay, them. I see. Hmm. Yeah, I, I do agree. It's it's a lot more nuanced than that. I, I do agree yeah, on that. Like, or how, how about the war on COVID? Right? It sure seemed material. You're like locking people in their houses and telling them that everyone has to go and wear a mask to walk around outside. Wait, so to me, that was purely based on fantasy, and here here's but, why. But people changed, right? but but human life changed dramatically. Yeah, but here to me, it was daily life, minute by minute. Yeah, but but to me, like anything that is based off of reality is based off of making observations and then correcting them, right? So if you make observations, like if if you say like, okay, we're going to have these agencies that reduce that that promote the public health, and then you actually run the agencies, right? What the agencies actually do is they harm public health; they actively make mm-hmm. it worse by doing things like banning uh-huh. COVID tests and delaying vaccines, yeah. right? And our, so our, you have yeah. this this thing that is detached from its actual purpose, I think it claims to be material and it certainly inflicts materials and material harms, but the actual reason why it survives is more like either more based on corruption or based on this fantasy. Right. Well, by that standard, we could go back to the great depression. FDR goes and pushes in mass unionization at a time of extraordinarily high unemployment, probably making the unemployment problem even worse. He's doing something. But at the same time, you know, I think you could also say, well, it's based on a fantasy about what the problem is. The problem is that employers don't want to hire people and raising unionization is going to make them less likely to hire people. So, so again, I just don't really understand the classification. Okay, I'll, I'll reconsider this. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's, it's no. kind of hard. It, there's this very funny meme that's like the entire U.S. legal system and and. and and there's like a, on a big domino and the small domino is like the word reasonable, right? You have to, you have to kind of create a, a definition of reasonable. Like what, what's a reasonable mistake to make, right? Like what's a reasonable thing to get wrong versus what is fantasy. But yeah, I, I agree with you. This is, this is kind of a quite a hard, uh, this is quite a hard definition. 
So, so maybe to return to the original point where where uh, we all started and where we all where we are genuinely uh, or sorry to, to return to the original point where we all started and where I want to basically be uh, concluding this interview is when you when you look at the feminist movement you can you can kind of look at two things you can kind of look at like how how correct they are right and I would agree with you that they're not very correct about reality as it is but you can also look at basically the emotional sentiment which is that you know a bunch of women uh don't think their lives are going very well and want to improve those lives right mm-hmm. and so maybe this is a bit unclear language and you can you can change it if you want but like what would a more effective feminist movement look like hmm. I and mean, i guess start by not making false accusations think before you speak before you accuse other people of causing your problems, calm down and see whether they really did. And if you've been making false accusations, an apology would be in order too. say, sorry, we were really off base to make these accusations. It was negligent of us even to do it the way that we did. Uh, so that would be step one. Uh, in terms of if you just say, well, like, you know, what could women do in order to improve their situation? Uh, there's a fantastic book that I reference in the first chapter called Why Men Earn More by Warren Farrell. So in the book, he gives 25 mm-hmm. different reasons why men make more money than women. Uh, he says this not to go and say that things have to be the way they are. He says, look, if you're a woman and you're reading this, there's 25 things you could do to make more money. Right? You could go and be willing to work night shifts more. You could go and travel to undesirable locations. You could do to STEM instead of humanities. It's got a lot of different stories about it. A lot of evidence that these are all effective methods of doing it. They all make sense. And then he says, and now that you know, I'm not saying to do all or any of them. Just realize what the trade-offs are. So if you want to go and make more money, you're probably going to have to give up some other things. right? And this, on the one hand, it gives you an understanding about what's been going on that's more accurate. On the other hand, it gives you some options, which you may or may not exercise. It's also one that men could read and say, wow, so I could probably have a much higher quality of life if I would go and put less emphasis upon money and just try to get a job that I like more. So you can read it that way as well. So I think that is something that would be a very good idea is just to focus on the trade-offs more and just say, huh, well, out of all these trade-offs that are available, are there any that seem personally palatable to me that I would like to pursue and go with those? In terms of the bigger picture, I'm a big fan of this old saying that holding on to anger is like drinking poison and expecting your enemy to die. (laughs) Right? And similarly, I would say that you know, the anger that feminism has promoted is, is highly counterproductive. It is much better to look upon other people uh, as potential allies. Think about what is the, would that to be, what are some constructive things that we could do together. When you are dating, this is a good way, a way of thinking about it. Don't think about someone as a bad person. Think about them as a bad match for you personally. Look for a good match. Similarly, on the job, instead of saying this person isn't helping me, he's bad, say, well, let, find, let me find someone that I would work well with and see what we can accomplish together, right? And again, that same advice I was giving to libertarians, also highly useful for humans, just being really friendly to people, trying to go and make as many friends as possible. Don't try to, don't, don't have the filter of, if you can't do anything for me right now, then I don't want to go and talk to you. You're beneath me. Instead, just try to be friendly to everyone and see what pops up. There's a lot of happenstance in human life. Oftentimes, someone that you didn't think would be of any use to you turns out to be of use to you, especially if you have a crazy long list of friends. Uh, so these are some things that I would say would be a very 
good, th- very good things for any human to do, including women. Of course, uh, same same principle applies either way. I mean, uh, in the book, I mentioned that partly due to feminism, on the one hand, this does make male managers more frightened of mentoring and things like this. On the other hand, it also increases the incentive to make it clear, I'm not like the feminists. I am someone that can take a joke. I'm someone that's easy to get along with. I just want to go and succeed. And I don't think, I think the best of other people. Uh, so that's something else that I would say is, you know, is, you know, to in a sufficient, you know, in, in a skillful way to play the, I'm not one of those feminist cards. I think that's also another good way for women to advance in life. And this is something that I just thought of now, I just noticed now, especially compared to other libertarians who think of things, and I'm not saying you don't do this, but a lot of libertarians emphasize and stress the kind of systems, the machinery, like literally the machinery of the state, right? Or or the machinery of politics in general, right? Um, And I think that you come off and you genuinely are like someone who is a lot more personal, right? A lot more oriented towards personal relationships, towards uh, communicating to someone as a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, actually, this is something to... that I've tried to improve it with as, as, as I've matured and not claiming to be great at it, just better than I was. Mm. Okay, so you weren't always like this. So <laughs> how did you kind of stumble on this? on this life path, this kind of divergence from other libertarians and, and what are like things you've learned the way? I would say that there was no stumbling rather. It was just very slowly maturing and things becoming really obvious to me and trial and error. I would so there is this classic book, Dale Carnegie's how to win friends and influence people. I did read it in high school. It all seemed true to me and it had no effect on my behavior because I wasn't ready to listen. But after that, I spent 20 years very slowly reinventing the wheel and trying to figure out ways of talking to other people and making friends and getting my ideas heard. And it was only a few years ago that I then reread it and like, gee, why did I have to reinvent the wheel? The guy gave me a perfectly functioning set of wheels. Why didn't I just listen <laughs> the first time around? But anyway, better late than never. Uh, so yeah, after I read that, then I would say that I became more conscious of the path that I had taken and the ways that, that I've improved and also trying to improve further. So that's a lot of what I got. In terms of things that I learned along the way, let's see. Wow. I mean, it's one of those cases, there's so many, it's hard to name any particular one. But I mean, you know, here's just a few life hacks for you. you know, I use social media a lot. Great life hack. Before you click send, just look at what you wrote and say, is there a more constructive way to say what I just said? Right? (laughs) It's really simple. But how many people in real life actually apply that simple test? Hardly anyone. Right? Mm, Yes. If if your tweet begins with, what these conservatives don't understand is... It's like, well, guess what? If you phrase it that way, they're never going to understand it because you are alienating them with those immediate words. You're just antagonizing your intended audience. That's very foolish. Instead, you want to go and build ties to your intended audience to try to make them feel like you understand them, that you appreciate them, that you want a lot of the same things. That's the way that you talk to a human being and get some results out of it. I mean, but anyway, like the, then there's things that are much less intellectual, but very true. Just smile. 
<laughs> just smile. It's not, it won't kill you. <laughs> I, I know it <laughs> sound like somebody's dad. I am four people's dad, but yeah, smile. It won't kill you. This is a very useful piece of advice. And yeah, am I perfect at this? No. And uh, people have said, yeah, your smile, it's, it's the smug, superior smile. Like, all right, you're probably right. I'm working on that. But I'm working on it at least. And even that smile's better than just the grimace of rage. So I'll give myself a pat on the back for that. Let's see. Other things. Uh, here is uh, something that I will tell students when they're coming looking for advice is you see, like, how can I go and succeed in this career? And I'll say, like, go and find people not too much older than yourself who already have the job that you want to get and reverse engineer their success. All right. Often the best way, if possible, and it usually is possible, the best way is to just go and start talking to people that fit the profile, people five or 10 years uh, ahead of you who have the job that you want and just find out how they did what they did. Uh, try to get to know them personally. Usually it's pretty flattering for people to get this, these, this kind of questioning. And so most will be pretty supportive of it. Uh, so that's something else. So like, like find out. So what credentials did you need in order to get to where you are? Like, like, you know, what kinds of, what, what kinds of people helped you? Could I get to know these people too? How can I go and meet similar people? Right. These are all great questions to be asking anytime that you are trying to advance in your career is just to learn from success. Yeah, I think, hmm, I don't know. I don't know if that's true for my generation because I think most of the people, especially talented people I know in my generation, not necessarily that last point, but I think most talented people in my generation have a problem of like overexposure rather than underexposure, right? I think a lot of cases, people in my generation have like a lot of friends who they at most times in history wouldn't be friends with. And it's probably not a good thing for most of them that they are friends with. There's this interesting that ha thing that happens, right? Where people have like lots of people that they occasionally interact with over a long period of time. And yet they feel like you're isolated. Right. So, so I think there's like this pattern here of being of basically like overcorrecting for this, of being like excessively inclusive of people and, and like not really being able to filter. Right. Not really being able to like actually like come to reckon with your basic instincts about like how how much do I want to be friends with with X person. Right. I, I think that that's actually like that's an instinct that's really lacking. And if anything, I would give people mm -hmm. in my generation the opposite of advice. But I don't know, there, there was a lot of, of course, there was a lot in there that wasn't related to that, right? I, I, I shouldn't just focus, going back to like negative I mean, I would, of course I, I would say like, there may be a few people who, yeah. What you're saying, you know, like a few people may have the problem of having too many friends. I think that's hardly anybody, honestly. Um, now you might say it's better to go and cement the friendships more by getting to know people in real life. I think there's a lot of value in that. And don't think that just because you've emailed someone online that they're really your friends, I mean, like this is very embedded in our evolution. Like in order to really care about people, it's important to see them often and see them in real life. Zoom is probably not a good substitute. But in terms of my specific advice for career success, 
I mean, this is one where it's not just going and slightly knowing a few people. It's finding people not too much older than yourself who have accomplished what you want to accomplish and learning how they did it. Right, I completely I agree with that part. That, yeah, I mean, that's something where, you know, like, you know, and again, uh, much better to meet them in real life, right? But, you know, you can use the internet to reach out, establish initial connections, but then to get to know them personally, that's a much better idea. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, like cold intros, right? You can email people. I mean, I emailed you. And this was like before I knew, or no, I think this was after I knew Robin. This was before I knew Tyler. But yeah, it, basically like a cold intro, right? Yeah. I think you know, there's good and bad ways of doing it. You'd be, so as you know. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this this has been a podcast that I think is just like just in its affect. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'll listen to it again and I'll have critiques of what you said of what I said, right? But this has been like a very like happy feeling podcast. I feel I feel happy after this podcast. So, so this was great. Very good. Uh, I do want to I do want to respect your time. I know you you don't have too much time left, and I do want you to answer the last question before you go. Uh, which is what is one thing that has too much chaos and needs more order and one thing that is too much order and needs more chaos. Hmm. All right. Those are tough ones. Let's see. <laughs> uh, well, I'll start with where we need more chaos and that's in universities. Uh, you know, the bureaucracy has expanded greatly and they are trying to crush almost any kind of independent action that's happening on campus. And like they're saying, well, like if we weren't here, then a bunch of weird things could be happening. And I say, yeah, I'd much rather have all the weird things happen and you be gone. So like <laughs> they, you know, they are imposing a strangulation level order of the campus and I just want them to disappear. They are a destructive force and you know, like with the things that would happen without them, it's just better to live with those things. Uh, now, in terms of something that needs more order, hmm, let's... See. Oh, so that one was the one that needs more chaos. Yeah, that's where, yeah, we need more chaos on campus. Uh, the bureaucracy is strangling independent existence here, and it's bad. Uh, in terms of something where we need more order, uh, hmm, I'm at least, I'm tempted to say, you know, K through 12 classrooms, you need, like, it's, you know, instead of having kids, you know, just focusing upon kids' feelings, it would be better to go and sit kids down and say, now we're going to learn some math. Sit down, shut up. Here's some math, right? There has been, you know, you know, in my area, definitely, and many other areas of the country, there's been such a switch towards touchy-feely education, and that could be fine for art, where the only point of it is just to have a good time. But for any subject that has right and wrong answers, and where it's important for people to learn how to do things correctly, this is a terrible attitude. Group projects are not the right way to learn math. You need to sit down, look at a piece of paper and face the harsh reality that you don't know what you're doing and then learn a recipe to do it, apply the recipe, do it over and over, drill, drill, drill. Right? And uh, you know, in many of the areas of the country, there has just been such a forgetting of this being the best way of teaching. Uh, I know that most people are going to forget it anyway, but it does seem like we're probably losing out on the chance to at least have elite students learn how to do this stuff. I am concerned that there is a just a, a you know, just, just there's so much concern with the feelings of the child that people are unwilling to say, hey, look, a lot of things in life are not fun, but it's important to do them anyway. So yeah, like you know, in you know, in the fundamentals of literacy and numeracy, I think we need more order, less chaos. 
<laughs> That's so interesting because I, I had V Moshewitz on the show and I think he said exactly uh, the opposite. Maybe not in terms of literacy and numeracy, but but he mm-hmm. said that public schools need a lot more chaos. Um, which I mean, actually, is is kind of similar to your critique of the uh, of of the higher education system. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I actually, yeah, I, mean, I, I said this is the last question. So you have time. Yeah, you, you, yeah some I mean, people take like fifteen minutes. Right, big difference. Yeah. Big difference between the order created by the bureaucracy, which I think is just a giant waste of time and is constricting actual progress, and order in the classroom, where I think that from what I've seen, teachers need to actually do the do the old fashioned thing of saying, "Sit down, shut up, here's some math." Right, and some people take fifteen minutes to answer well, the last I, question. I would blame the bureaucracy uh, for stopping teachers from doing that. Is the bureaucracy that is pushing the touchy-feely dogma upon the entire school system. Uh, when I went to back-to-school night in Fairfax County Public Schools, where we live, I got to hear the teachers talking, oh, well, this is the philosophy of Fairfax County. And I'm like, who are you to have a philosophy anyway? Right? I didn't, I, like, <laughs> we ever paying taxes so you guys can philosophize and then tell us your philosophy? Like, Shh, quiet. <laughs> Do you have a, you've been given a job. It is not a job of philosophy. You're not trying to decide the best things in life. You're supposed to go and teach arithmetic to children. Do your job. <laughs> yeah. Uh, most people, a lot of people take like 15 minutes to answer this question, but yours was, yours was pretty short. So I want to ask you a follow-up on that first point. What do you think uh, of the new University of Austin? I have met the president and I know a number of people that are involved. I guess that, uh, first of all, I, I, I wish them the very greatest success, the motivations behind it of trying to create a place where people can research and teach without having to look over their shoulder and be brainwashed by wokeness is a good one. In terms of their business model, I think honestly, they probably are, you know, first of all, it's just going to be really hard to actually succeed because of the signaling problem that I talk about in my book, The Case Against Education. Who are the first people that were going to show up as students at the University of Austin going to be? Right? I think that you're, it's going to be very hard to get good students because they are basically gambling with their whole future. They could do the safe thing and go to the best school that admits them, or they could do this really weird thing that might stigmatize them for life. So I think that there's going to be severe adverse selection in the students. And then furthermore, in terms of the founding members of the school, the founding faculty, the people who are involved, the problem there, honestly, is that it's too expansive. There are too many people who are not actually that hostile to wokeness. So, you know, there's plenty of people who are liberal who there who are like, well, I don't like woke dogma, but on the other hand, I have lots of woke friends and it's that's a very important perspective. It's like, yeah, well, if half your people think that, then you're going to start hiring woke people and probably you're going to be pretty similar to other places if you do succeed within 10 or 20 years. If you really want to do something different, you've got to structure it in a different way. I have a lot of friends at the... Universidad Francisco Marroquin and Guatemala, uh, yeah, Francisco Marroquin University in Guatemala, and when yes, you know, so this is a place that has stayed very different for a very long time. And when I talk to them, how do you do it? The answer is that they have a board which is very uniform in its vision, and the only people who are added to the board are other people who have been known for a very long time to be in uh, in sync with that vision. Uh, and they have, oh, there's no faculty governance there. 
So that's, I think, what you would really have to do if you wanted to create a university where wokeness was permanently held at bay. Uh, so I don't think University of Austin is actually doing that. Uh, prove me wrong, guys, if you're listening. Um, I, no one would be happier to be totally wrong than me about this. The, the, the point you raise about selection effects is super interesting because I thought I think they go completely in the other direction. I think the first few iterations will be uh, the best people. You see this with Y Combinator. You see this with the Teal Fellowship, right? Like people who pursue new opportunities are usually like high quality. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was great no, speaking to you. Well, no, sorry, uh, wrong. <laughs> I mean, look, you can find a few counterexamples, but if you start a new college, overwhelmingly, what students are you going to get? Students that can't get into existing top colleges. Why would someone who has a bright future, practically guaranteed, gamble on some weird thing uh, that starts off as low status? I mean, in the, with the Teal Fellowships there, you have a very tiny number of people who are selected for being just off, off the charts awesome. That wouldn't be what the University of Texas would be able to do, right? You know, like basically, he is pay, you know, Teal is paying them piles of money to, and then has enormous options to go and select the few very best people, but that is totally abnormal. I mean, in general, people that are doing online education, of course, they are, they are people who have some issue or other with succeeding by the conventional path, and it makes sense that the world is nervous about them. I love you guys, but I'm scared to hire you. All right, we'll see that how that pans out. Uh, it was great speaking with you. Uh, this will, and this will probably go out in, I think, three weeks. And uh, this was a okay. wonderful time. Thanks for coming on. All right. All right. All right. Thank, uh, thanks you very much, Cactus. And so the new book, Don't Be a Feminist, Essays on Genuine Justice, it's an Amazon exclusive. You can get it for 12 bucks in paperback, $9.99 for the ebook. This is the third in a series of eight books of my essays. Uh, this is the one book, the latest one is the one that has a big section on wokeness and everything relating to it. So if you like that issue, this is the book for you. I've also, of course, got a bunch of other books that you can see on Amazon, Myth of the Rational Voter, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, Case Against Education, and Open Borders, and a lot more will be coming. And uh, my Substack is uh, bet on it, so uh, please subscribe. That was my interview with Brian Kaplan. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe to the show, and the best thing you can do for us is always to just share the show. There are people who trust you way more than they trust me, and if they're like you, have similar interests as you, then the odds are they would enjoy the podcast just as much as you did. So you can share either on social media or in person and give us something that only you can do. You can also help by leaving a review and especially suggesting future guests. And of course, get in contact with us by commenting on the Substack if you think there's something you want us to hear. And as always, there'll be a great episode for you next week.